words that are not only true, but uh, are good and beautiful and need to be sung. And we thank you for the gift of song and the, the way in which we can be captured up into the truths of these things uh, more deeply than just our, our minds, our intellects. We thank you that you have given us strength and uh, rootedness and uh, a life that is full of light uh, that will lead into eternity. We thank you for these good things that we do need to sing about, we want to sing about. We pray please now as we reflect on that very psalm that's given rise to that song that please you would help us understand it well but you please help us delight in it and uh, find the richness of it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, I don't know if you picked up but there was no credit at the end of that song. It's because uh, Trev and the music team here actually wrote it, produced it, put it all together. It's very good, isn't it? And uh, praise God for the gifts that he's given his church and we are so thankful for their work amongst us. We are starting a new series today on the book of Psalms, uh, which is the songbook of the people of God. Uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, you, you go all the way to the end and you'll find that there's 150 psalms. That's a lot of songs. And they're rich, deep and profound. There's a whole range of emotional experiences expressed through the psalms. Uh, it, God inspired this book, and that's helpful to note as well. God inspired it. He, it's his gift. That is to say, he's given us, he's given his people a songbook to sing, do you see? Uh, because he's for the fullness of our human experience. He's, the, he's for the fullness of our human emotional life. We are not just brains on a stick. But we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. We're to love him with the fullness of who we are, from the depths of our being. We're to know the truth. It's an intellectual activity, understanding and knowing the truth that sets you free. But we're to delight in the truth because it's a beautiful truth, and we're to live the truth, we're to obey the truth. It impacts all the dimensions of our life. 150 Psalms, it really is amazing with the diversity, and we'll jump into it a little bit here and there with the time we've got. We'll pull out a few and focus in on some of them. And in that mix, it's worth noting that the very first Psalm has the shape that it has. The very first psalm is significant in the way its content is structured. It's like the doorway into the whole psalm, the whole book of psalms. And it, it brings to us, as you enter into this songbook, it, kind of, it sets the scene to appreciate a fundamental reality of humankind, a fundamental truth of who we are as humans, a fundamental truth actually that's contested, that culturally today we're not particularly attracted to, but which the first psalm lays before us as profoundly important. Now, what's that fundamental reality and truth? That there's two ways to live. Only two. There's a way that's life and a way that's death. And this is not dependent on personal perception. This is an objective fact that the psalmist draws our attention to. This is not just about a lifestyle choice, which you prefer and I prefer, that's different. This is more deep, more profound. That there's a divide in humankind that, that eclipses every other divide. It's a division, says the psalmist, between the righteous and the wicked. Do you notice through the psalm, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Uh, that person, verse 3, is like a tree... Uh, verse 5, uh, the wicked is used again, 
that the assembly of the righteous is talked about. The Lord work, walk, watches over the way of the righteous. The language of wicked, the language of righteous, the two options are laid out before us in this very first psalm as you come into the whole book of Psalms. Now those words are important actually just to recognise for their meaning as we start of course too because uh, that language does need some care. Righteous and wicked in our kind of cultural context is easily misread I think. Um, when I hear the word righteous used in the context of wicked um, I do I immediately think of the um, look down your nose at the rest of the world person, the righteous, and the wicked person, someone who's just trying to make the best fist of their life. Do, you know, it's kind of like, um, culturally we've shaped these words in a very different way, I think, than the Bible understands and means them. Uh, let me give you some sense of what the words mean in this psalm and through the book of Psalms. Uh, if you go to Psalm 10, you'll see a sense of it. Chase it, chase it up now if you like, Psalm 10, verse 4, 5, 6 there, you'll see a description of the wicked. The wicked's not just a person who is, is evil, though there is that as it emerges. The wicked is the person who has no room for God, a person who lives life without regard to God, who has cast off God in their lives. Whereas the righteous is the person who recognises their need for God, their determination to bow the knee to him as Lord, Lord of all and therefore Lord of us. Fundamentally, the difference between the righteous and the wicked is their relationship, the way they engage with the person of God. It's a relational issue that has moral implications. Because if you've come to God to bow the knee to God by his grace, I'll talk about that in a moment, then you'll seek to live by his way. Not perfectly, never in this age perfectly, always in need of forgiveness, but fundamentally he will rule your life which will shape the way you live. But the larger point as the Bible unfolds is that that difference between the righteous and the wicked, though it expresses itself in a different shape to life, the way to that life is through forgiveness fundamentally. It's through the reconciliation that comes by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there is no one righteous, not even one. We can only talk like this because there's an assumption beneath it that in coming to Jesus, we are counted as if we are righteous. We're given a gift of his righteousness that becomes our own. And so we stand before God, not on the basis of our own morality and goodness, but on the basis of forgiveness won by Jesus, the righteous one. But we come back under God to now be shaped by him. And that will change your life. You see, Jesus brought all of this same sense to life. He brought this exact reality of a division between two people. The red reading Rob brought to us from Matthew chapter 7, as the Sermon on the Mount ends, one of the greatest sermons ever preached, of course, as the sermon ends, Jesus talks about a great division, a terrible division between humankind. Um, there are two gates, there are two roads, there are two destinations, the narrow and the broad. But there are two foundations upon which you can build your life, the rock or the sand. And he says that his words are the rock. And there's only two kinds, two options. And so much of what we talk about this morning puts forward this challenge to us. Which path will you take? The path of the righteous or the wicked? 
What will be the shape of your life that emerges from all of this? There will be a division eternally and it is monumental. Nothing else matters in light of this judgment that's to come. Look at verse 6 of Psalm 1. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction, condemnation and death. Now, I'm conscious that uh, as a start to a kind of engagement together, this is what's called a hard start-up. I don't know if you've ever had any counselling discussions and so on, but one of the things that's used in relational counselling is uh, if you have a problem with each other, don't come with a hard start-up. Don't come blaming as your first expressions of words together. Don't come talking about the problems of the other person when you first... It'll always go bad. Bring a different kind of start. Express your own hurts and concerns and that'll soften the engagement and bring a relational reconciliation. Hard startup. I'm conscious that I've just started with a very hard startup. There are two ways, only two ways. It's not okay to be whatever you want to be. There's only one way to be that will bring life. But that's the way the Bible starts. That's the way the book of Psalms starts. As it enters into this rich diversity of human experience under the life of God with all the joys and sorrows and hurts and grief and and thrill and with all of that richness, it begins with this psalm. There's only two ways. The way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And I think what it does as we begin is it says you need to flee from the wicked to the righteous. You need to make sure you are the one who is under God that the Lord is watching over. Cling to that. Don't drift. Now, we're going to dig into the detail of the psalm and uh, I want to suggest to you as we go through it, it will highlight the reality of these two ways and draw out the differences. What are the contrasts between those two ways? I'm going to offer there's three, four, I think, of them uh, and we'll move through them relatively quickly. But let me give you the first one. Let's look now at the detail. Verse 1, the first contrast that the psalmist draws is between the one who is blessed and favoured and the one who will lead to destruction. So verse 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Blessed. The word blessed carries this sense that God looks on favour on one person and not the other. Destruction for that, love, favour, blessing for this. There's a difference in the way God sees these two lives. Again, this is not just a subjective experience. This is not just how one feels about their life and how the other feels about their life. This is an objective response to an existence beyond us where God sees us, blesses and favours one and brings destruction to the other. This is the deepest of divisions. There's the first contrast. Let me give you the second contrast, uh, somewhat longer. It's the contrast between what authority you value. You compare verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that the contrast being drawn ultimately is a contrast between uh, where you gain your authority. 
There is one who does walk, stand and sit in the company of mockers, sinners, wicked. And there's a progression there, isn't there? There's a progression of walking with, standing with, sitting with. And it's a progression of one who walks, stands, sits with those opposed to the things of God. Uh, participates, engages with, heeds and hears. And I think there's a particular reference to the heed and hear because of the contrast that's drawn in verse 2 with the, with the righteous who delights in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his word day and night. That is, who walks, stands, sits with God, heeds God, listens to God, has God shape their life. That's the difference. There's one person who walks with those who are opposed to God, is shaped by their way of seeing the world, their values, insights, their moral vision, their convictions. Now, the obvious example of this is the young man who's raised by a hard-working single mum, a loving single mum, doing the best she can, and uh, the kid's growing up with a sort of sense of responsibility and you can see the child emerging and growing and then falls in with the wrong crowd gets caught up with the gang and walks, stands, sits and is shaped by their vision of life and what life's about and how you ought to live life. And that influence undoes the child. You can see how there's a very close example of that. Uh, you know, one of my... Um, we, we, we've got a friend in church called Jamie. Uh, many of you will know Jamie and uh, he has lots of sayings and I love his sayings. One of, his, one of my most favourite Jamie sayings, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you, Jamie, is uh, you are the average of your five best friends. That's nice, isn't it? It just it captures so much that's profound and real. You are the average of your five best friends. Who you chance, choose to, to, to walk with, stand with, sit with, will shape you. Now, it's not a rule, it's a proverb. So there are exceptions and there are other pieces that need to be added in. But do not underestimate the power of the group you move with. And you contrast that with the one who walks, stands, sits with God, who meditates day and night on his word and the impact and shaping that will bring. Now, in all of this, what I'm offering is that the contrast here really is between, between the question of authority. Who do you listen to? Which therefore broadens the application. Do, do you see what I mean? The danger is that you can read this and go, yeah, as long as I'm not hanging out with the wrong crowd, I'm all okay. No, 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 no. There's much more being said than that. It's the question around where you gain your life wisdom. It's a question of what is the practical authority in your life. Now, I use the word practical because I think theoretically we can have a commitment to an authority of God's word, but in practice be shaped otherwise. You see, I think what we need to wrestle with is not the theory of what we should do, but the practice of how it actually flows into our life. I think where we need to reflect and need persuading over is how profoundly social media, the movies, uh, the, the conversations, the, the papers, the, um, the work situations, 
We, we need to be alert to how much that shapes our vision, our values. And I want to give you some examples. Now, this is dangerous. There has been a massive shift in the moral vision of church over the last 20, 30 years. That is an objective fact. Churchgoers, Christians, have profoundly changed the way they think about morality. Just, and this is where it gets tricky, but let's just take one example, homosexuality. Now, I won't enter into all the details and so on, but what I want to offer is very clearly there is a profound change in the way churchgoers, Christians, churches are engaging with the morality of homosexuality. A profound change. Now, why has that change happened? 20, 30 years ago, there was a unanimous clarity around these things. It's disappeared. Why? Is it because of a closer engagement with the Scriptures? Is it because Christians have spent more time wrestling day and night with what the Bible teaches and that's changed our thinking? Or is it the power of culture to shape us? What's been the driver? I'm going to offer that there's a, there's a moral ethic that we've imbibed from the culture and it's slipped in almost unnoticed but it's there. Do you see, what is the moral vision of the world around us? If you were to boil down how people work out their moral right wrongs, what makes something morally right, what makes something morally wrong, what would you say is the kind of the, the key piece there that helps us think through right, wrong, truth, thought and so on? Here's what I'd suggest it is. Harm. The question of harm. Something is morally right if it doesn't harm another person, Morally wrong if it does bring harm to another person. There it is. That is almost the sum total of the moral vision of our world. As long as you do no harm, you're doing right. If you bring harm, you are doing wrong. That's it. Now, it seems so right because it is right to care for people. <laughs> it is right to not want to hurt and harm others. Absolutely. But when that becomes your ethic, it becomes hugely problematic. Because here it is, once you've got that as your simple ethic, all you need to do is demonstrate that an action hurts someone, someone feels hurt by it, and you'll class that action as morally wrong. This is, this is how it plays out in the abortion debate. So, again, touching on a very big issue, but not landing it for us, the key thing for people who want to legalise, allow abortion on demand is ensuring that we don't imagine the baby in the womb is a human. We call it a fetus, and it's, it's an embryo. As long as we, we use language that's non-personal, then we don't sense the victimhood of that infant. Because the key to winning a moral argument today is to identify that someone's been victimised by an action. And as soon as you can do that, you'll win the sympathy of people and clarify what's morally right wrong. And so we must make sure that that's not perceived as a human. Because if we do, we actually now have a clash of victims. You see, there's the, 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 the young woman who's struggling with life, wondering where life will go and the impact of this child on them and, and so we can see the harm that might be done there. But if we now acknowledge that the child in the womb is really a human and 
to abort will kill the child, then there's a harm that's done there and now you're in a moral dilemma. Which one do I harm? Because there are now two people involved. But whilst ever I say it's my body and only my body, then you can't bring that other piece in and I'm clearly the only victim here. And you see, this is how we resolve moral dilemmas. But I want to offer things that are far more complex. Human life and the way we operate is far more complex than the world is giving us. Let me give you just a couple of pieces. There is something about the human body, the human heart, that is sacred. There is no such thing as victimless crime. What, what you do in your home, privately, sexually, when no one's there, impacts who you are. It plays out against the sanctity of the body that you've been given. And that will change you. And it will change, therefore, the way you relate when you walk out the front door. How you engage with other people, how you relate, how you have male-female relationships, how you marry, how you have... It'll impact everything about you. Homosexuality will impact who you are and the way I function and operate as a human. And the implications of that will be vast, beyond what we could even understand and imagine. The moral vision being given to us by the world is simplistic, narrow, and simply is not sufficient to make sense of the moral needs of our world. But we have largely imbibed it. Because we walk, stand and sit so much with the world around us. Do you, do you see, we've changed the way we think about sexuality and the practice of sex because we've not wanted to hinder someone's self-expression because that seems like freeing and liberating. And so we've wanted to give lease for someone to express themselves sexually, however they see fit. If it's outside of marriage, then the world's a free place. And what we've done is we've separated the sex act from procreation, from the conceiving of a child and raising of children. And we've insisted that, it, that those two things are quite separate and you don't need to join them together. And what that has created is a world where sexual activity has happened without, outside of the bounds of marriage as a norm and practice, which has created inevitably a heightened expression of single parenthood. Now, we love single mums and dads. We want to get alongside and help and support. But as a pattern for life, that's played out massively. There are huge tracts of the uh, states of America where massive regions have incredible dysfunctionality, poor educational outcomes, poverty, uh, gang life, violence. And it's almost always traced back to lack of father, a loss of a father in a family, which you can trace all the way back to the way the world has taught us to think about sexuality and sex and the sex act. The, the consequences as you unravel that knot have flowed out into massively profound dysfunctionality. Now again, I'm not, I'm not having a shot at single parenthood by any means. Jesus was raised by a single mum, it seems. But there are implications of our ethical vision that have flowed out in ways that we have not understood. Because we've walked, we've stood, we've sat with the way a world thinks that wants to pursue a certain ideology. I'd offer too that we need greater care in this area. Because we live in a very different context than the time of the psalmist. You see, the contrast to 
to walking, standing, sitting with the world and its ethics and its values and its way of living life is to, verse 2, delight in the law of the Lord, to, to meditate day and night on God and his word. Now, here's the difference. The psalmist is raised in a culture where the word of God is paramount. We're raised in a culture that's secular. We are born walking, standing, sitting with the world. To actually come to the place, verse 2, of delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating in the law of the Lord day and night, seeing that as our authority, requires, a, requires an active decision to step out of and step into. You see, the contrast is being drawn, I think, between the wisdom of the world, society and culture, and the Word of God. As you come into the New Testament, it's the Word of Christ, the Word of Jesus. Anyone who builds their life on me and my words builds their life on a rock that will ground them, strengthen them. And it's a rock because it's from God the God who made us and knows us and is, is all-knowing, can see the beginning from the end, who knows that if you unravel this piece, it will flow out into all of these kinds of areas, though I can't see it, fallible that I am. Cultural moods shift and change, but the Word of God stands unmoved. The first contrast is whose life is favoured by God, the blessed one. The second contrast is where your authority is. Where do you go to see what life ought to be and how it ought to be lived? Um, and notice, it's not the contrast between, uh, you, you know, uh, walking, standing, sitting with the world and glancing at the Bible. It's the contrast between walking, standing, sitting with the world and meditating day and night on the Bible delighting in the Word of God, digging deeply in the Word of God. This is why, though some find it frustrating and odd, this is why we're very committed to every one of us being in a small group together to wrestle with the words of God, to learn comprehension skills, to see what the text is actually saying, to free us from being our own subjective ideas but actually hear what it says, to reshape and to meditate day and night, that we might be freed from the way the world sees things, to see things God's way, in all its beauty, greatness and truth. What you have here at the start of God's great songbook is him posing a question for us. Which one are you? Which one do you want to be? Well, there's more to be said. Look, let me show you the third contrast it's there in verses 3 to 5, and it's the contrast between the consequences of these two lives. Uh, it's, the, it's the contrast of verse 3. The person who delights in the Word of God, meditates on it day and night, founds himself on the Word, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked... They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. It's a very vivid piece of poetry, isn't it? Expressing the different life that comes from the different foundations, the different authorities that you invest yourselves in. You've got the contrast between the, the very rooted, deep 
nourished, solid, flourishing, uh, unmoved, strong to cope with the buffeting winds of life, the trees and the, the fruit and leaves that flourish and give fruit and give away and have richness about them, whatever they do prospers. Contrast it with husks, the dry leaves, the dead gum leaves that just crumble and have no roots and are blown away, insubstantial. Now, you would have noticed, I've said it, well, I hope you've noticed, I've said it a few times, that one of the key differences is the roots. The outcome of life is very different at the surface, but the key difference that gives rise to that outcome is the kind of roots they have. One kind of rootedness produces fruit, flourishing, a thing of substance. The other has no root. It's dry, it's insubstantial, it's blown away. The difference is the roots. One is rooted into streams of water. And it's a powerful image, isn't it? Imagine the arid landscape of the Middle East and um, you're kind of riding through where, where the wind just blows dust back and forward and coming upon an oasis near a river, a stream, and there the trees grow. And there's something lush and flourishing about it all because the roots have somewhere to go. Now, what are the roots in that gives rise to this person? I suggest the roots, of course, are back in verse 2, delighting in the word of the Lord. But even further back than that, the roots go back they were into the word of God and into the God who has given us the word. Your roots are into God himself. And that speaks so powerfully to our world. Here, to raise another controversial cultural issue, let me do it for you. Our world is insubstantial. It is rootless. Culturally, we have cut ourselves off from our past, from our history, and from anything else outside of ourselves spiritually. We have isolated ourselves... We critique the past because we've bought into the view that our, we are all getting better and better every year. And so for that to actually play out well, to be heard well, we have to critique the past to show that we've improved. And so there's now nothing to learn from the past because 1950s was all bad. You know, back in the 1700s, all bad. 21st century is getting better and better every day. Until you look at America. Um, but that's, that's the message we're receiving. We've cut ourselves off from our history and our past. There's nothing to learn. We pull our history down. But more than that, we've, we've cut off our spiritual roots so that there's nothing outside of us. There's no God beyond us. It's just us. We are just the products of our own efforts. We're, each human is a fresh work to be made however you want to be made. You don't, you don't have any obligations to the past or to a God outside of you. It's just you. Now, that is hugely empowering. We can be whoever we want to be. I can pursue the me project. I, I, can, I can express myself how I want to express myself. I can transition. I can think of myself. I can do and be. It's hugely empowering because I'm not beholden anywhere, but it's deeply destabilising. Deeply destabilising. We've got no roots. 
It's up to me to make of my life. That's it. It's all up to me. I'm a lump of clay to make of myself what I want. I don't know what to make of myself. I don't even have the power to pull it off. Circumstances come and knock me off that. I can't actually... And there are. There's this sense about me that I am rooted. There is something that stops me being able to be. And You know, a deep meditation on the Word of God, meditating on it day and night. We didn't just appear here. We are deeply and truly the creation of God. Our roots are in Him as humans. You know, we ask the question, who am I? We want to know who am I that I can be who I am. Well, the deepest truth is we came from God. We were made in His image. That's who you are. A creature in the image of God, an image bearer. That's the truth of who we are, born of God and saved by God, redeemed by Him through the work of Christ. You are a child of God because of the merits of Christ. We have roots in him and his words. Now there is life. There is substance. There is a rootedness that will mean whatever storms life throws at you, you will not be tossed. You know, the wicked. Now again, the word sounds so ugly, doesn't it? I mean, it's meant to, of course, but we can then miss its application. The wicked are those who dismiss these roots who are sure that we can make of ourselves whatever we want. They cast God off, but in doing so, they condemn humanity to be without roots, to be rocked back and forward by every wind that comes, whereas the righteous recognise the truth of our origins and it stabilises you because the roots of our origins are like a song sung to our soul that resonates with who we are. Have you noticed that? That there is a power for the song of the Word of God that speaks to us about who we are, rooted in God, saved by God, made for God. There's a, there's a, there's a power of that song as it's sung to our soul that resonates because it's who we are. It's who we were made to be. And so the psalmist begins with this picture. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do, they prosper. Which should raise a question for you. What does it mean to say that the righteous will prosper in whatever they do? Let's take a quick aside and come back to it just quickly. What does it mean to say the righteous will prosper in whatever they do? You ought to be alert to this question because there's a... Uh, many around us are teaching us that if, you're a, if you become a Christian, your life will prosper in every way. You'll be healthy, you'll never get sick, you'll be wealthy, you'll never be in debt, as long as you're 100% faithful and relied on God. It's called the prosperity gospel. It's the gospel, the message that if you come to Jesus and live by 100% faith in him, you'll be prosperous in all your ways. Is that true? Well, this seems to say that. Whatever they do, they prosper. This is a critical issue to wrestle with and uh, one, one way to get some engagement with it is a TV program, of all things. 
I've just talked down TV, let me talk up TV. Uh, there's a show on Netflix at the moment that's only there for another two weeks, so I'm alerting you to it that you need to get onto it before it actually gets taken down by Netflix. But um, do you know what Netflix is? Some of you will know, of course. But uh, th it's a show called The American Gospel. The American Gospel. Chase it up. You're looking for something to watch, I know. That's a good thing to look at. It will help you get a sense of the American Gospel, the prosperity Gospel and its problems. It's actually very, very good uh, and very helpful. So chase that through the next couple of weeks. But what does it mean here that whatever they do, they prosper? Well, let me offer, a, let me give you the conclusion and give you some evidence for it and then finish together. Here's the conclusion. I think what he means in context is, and this is very simple, it's a complex area, but he means ideally it is God's intention that this ought to be your experience. Ideally, it's God's intention that this ought to be your experience. And it will be in those areas of life that matter in this fallen age that we're in, while we wait for the new age to come, where it will be true in every particular. Is that, is that simple enough? <laughs> It's true in an idealised sense for the future age that we will one day... It's God's purpose that you ought to prosper in his world. It's just that we live in a fallen world at the present. And it does not work out so simply as that. And to suggest it does, rejects the complex portrayal the Bible brings us. Let me tell you this. Come to Psalm 73. Come across to Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now there is a statement of Psalm 1, rehearsed again. Psalm 1 says that if you meditate on the law of the Lord day and night, delight in it, then you'll prosper in all you do. And that's what Psalm 73 verse 1 says. Surely that's true. But look at verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they're free from common human burdens, they're not plagued by human ills, their pride is their necklace, their calloused hearts and so on and so forth. Um, here is a man, a, a godly man, a righteous man saying, I thought it was meant to be the case that if I gave my life to you, I would prosper and the wicked wouldn't, but here the wicked are. And look at verse 13, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, all day long I've been afflicted, every morning brings new punishments. Here is a man who is saying, my experience doesn't fit Psalm 1. And I'm a righteous man. The answer isn't to say, you need more faith. He's saying, I've got faith. The book of Job says the same thing. The whole book of Job is written to say that in the fallen age that we're in, God's favour on his blessed ones will not always work out in every particular for prosperity. It will in those things that matter and it will ultimately in the new age but now you'll experience a mix of blessing and struggle. You see, it will work out in some things. If you give heed to God and his way of engaging sexually, 
It'll bring stability to your life. It'll bring health back to your life. You'll have better relationships. If you give heed to God and the way he talks about love, where the essence of love is faithfulness, not feelings, if you embrace that biblical insight, your marriage will stabilise, you'll deepen and strengthen, and your kids will grow up in a more stable environment. They'll do better. They'll be more stable. They'll have better marriages. All of this will flow through and make a massive change. You will prosper in all kinds of ways. If you're generous with your giving, if you're sacrificial and generous, it actually creates a generous heart which changes the way your life functions and brings health to it. You'll prosper in all kinds of ways. But you can be faithful, godly, delight in the Lord, sacrifice and serve and lose a child at childbirth. Lose your job. Be in debt and get cancer. And none of that, none of that is in, an indication that God's favour is not on you because you're living in a fallen world where things are far more complex than this. And the Scriptures teach us this. You see, the Scriptures have these two messages. There is a prosperity God intends for us, but there's a reality of living in a fallen world where that is not an absolute except in the things that matter spiritually and eternally. Spiritually, look at verse 6. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the, wicked lead, the way of the wicked leads to destruction. God will bring prosperity in the day of judgment. If you stand in the merits of Jesus and are so counted righteous because of his gift, you will prosper on the day of judgment. But the wicked won't. It will be very clear where prospering is found. And this is what happens as you come into the New Testament. The New Testament, this expectation of prosperity in physical things in this current age disappears. And you'll find churches that teach the prosperity gospel only refer to the Old Testament because it's only really there. When you come into the New Testament, Jesus lifts your horizons and says, no, 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 this life is you're just passing through. God in his love for you will take things from you now because he wants to lift your heart to the age to come, to the realm of a new creation for the coming of Jesus. He doesn't want you to be home here. There's a shift from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Brothers and sisters, in the things that matter, you will prosper and in the many other things as well. This is a great truth that if you delight in the word of the Lord, meditate on it day and night, have given yourself to God, letting him shape you, it will bring great good into your lives in such a way that you'll have such deep roots that whatever terrible things come, you'll stand, you'll flourish, you'll produce fruit. Let me finish. Brothers and sisters, there's two ways to live and only two that matter. You can choose to continue to walk, stand, sit in the world and its moral vision and its values and be shaped by that. Or you can walk, stand, sit in the Word of God. Delight in God's Word. Delight in it as you delight in that which is good because it's come to us from a good God. A God who loves us, who has made us, who knows how we work best 
who will prosper you into eternity, (laughs) who wants for you love and goodness. If you come to him, you will find strength and depth and riches, riches that matter into eternity. Brothers and sisters, we're not playing games here. This is very real. It matters what you do with this. And so the first psalm, the first song, lays for us a challenge. Which way will you go? Which way do you want to go? How about I pray that God might change us? Let's do that. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, that you might work in our lives so profoundly to help us see the foolishness of the world, that we might be shaken free from imagining wisdom is to be found there. Help us to see how good your word is, that it's a rock to build our lives on, that in the midst of all kinds of instability, it's stable and strong, and we can put our roots down deeply into it and to you. Father, we pray for each of us that you might help us delight in your word, that we might be found in Christ, knowing him deeply and well, transformed and changed by him. Help us be that person, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.